0: Dr. Butterfield, I want us all to imagine a young lady or a young man, 14, 15 years old, sitting on the other side of the desk and listening to this resource for the very first time hearing our discussion, who is struggling with same-sex attraction. I I want you to speak just to that person.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I would say, I understand and I would say also this, that in any church that you walk into, everybody is struggling with something. And that this struggle is no more demeaning or diminishing to, to the integrity of your life and your life in Christ than any other. And you're struggling. And it's embarrassing, and maybe it's embarrassing because you just don't know. And, and the first thing you need to do is you need to pick somebody in your church to talk to. I'm going to say, preferably a pastor or an elder, preferably somebody older than you. And 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 I, and I want you to have the courage, prayerfully, to share what you're struggling with, because it gives God glory to allow other people to pray for you in your struggle it is not only you know everything that we do we we live to give god glory and although it sounds really counterintuitive kind of crazy when you share what you're struggling with that gives god glory it gives god glory because other people are praying for you and it gives it gives God glory because you see some new avenues of repentance that maybe you hadn't seen before. So so you must not be alone. And the reason you must not be alone is because God wants you to flourish in a community of believers.
0: Hi, this is Dr. Chuck Batters, and I appreciate so very much the fact that you are listening to this. Audio resource from Marking Ministries. Marking Ministries stands for making abundant riches known in the name of Christ. Today we have a very special guest we're going to introduce in just a moment. But first, because of the intensity and sensitivity of this topic, uh, I'm going to pray first, and then I'm going to ask Sharon to introduce our guest. Father, we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. We thank you for your word, your inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. How grateful we are, Lord, that it is the truth. And we pray, Father, that you will help us as we work through this very special topic. Bless our guest and bless the interview. May it be to your glory when it's all said and done. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sharon, who do we have with us today?
2: I'm so excited to introduce to our listeners Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. I first learned of Dr. Butterfield when I read her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, and then her second book, Openness Unhindered. And she has such an impact on me personally and really on thousands of people that she will probably not know this side of heaven how God has used her to encourage and to offer help and hope to hurting people. And it's so exciting because the topic that we're going to be talking about today is really a hot button. It's a hot button in our culture. It's a hot button with young people. It's a hot button in the church. And I'm so grateful that Dr. Butterfield is going to help us navigate this huge topic but one that is extremely personal to so many people, and that is the topic of same-sex attraction. So thank you so much, Dr. Butterfield, for giving us of your time today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Dr. Butterfield,
0: um, your book is is so exciting to read. It's so challenging. As I read it, I was thinking, you know, many years ago when I was in college, I kind of wish I had a professor like you. Somebody that I could have sat under and had uh, the challenges that apparently you extended to all who sat under you. Uh, Why don't you take a moment and describe for us uh, your journey in and out of the gay lifestyle?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I'll tell you that for me, it, it just wasn't a lifestyle. You know, a lifestyle is something that you purchase and exchange, and it was very much a life. For as long, really, as I can remember, I've, I've always really enjoyed very... Good and strong relationships with women, strong friendships. I I was not raised in a Christian home, but I was not raised in a, you know, in, in a horrible home. I had a, a great relationship with with uh, my father and and a good relationship with my mother. And when I headed off for college, I started to date men, and and men were attracted to me. And I I dated men for about ten years, and I would have told you during that time that I. Had, was a, you know, had a heterosexual adolescence. Um, but one of the things that was happening to me while I kept dating men was I kept falling in love with women. And it was a little imperceptible at first, but it, it clearly made its impact. And then by the time I was 28, I met my first lesbian lover. And and i came out and and really i didn't i didn't grieve it i wasn't upset life really came together for me and and finally made sense my story is a little different i think than a lot of people i came out later in life now i'm 54 so some of this might be generational also But not only did I come out later in life, I I did not have any, you know, terrible relationship with a parent that would, you know, attribute to this. But because both of my parents really, they were not Christian. In fact, my mother was not a Christian until days before uh, she passed away, which was uh, an amazing blessing of the Lord that she did come to Christ late in life. But they, you know, they were not Christians. They, they, they really were not upset. So it wasn't that I didn't have a lot to lose. If that makes any sense, I, I think in some ways. It may parallel some of what we're concerned about in this generation. When I came out as a lesbian, life finally came together for me and made sense.
0: What was the most painful time for you in your, uh, I'll use that expression, coming out? What was the most difficult, most painful time for you?
1: I was not difficult to come out. I mean, again, I I know my story might be a little different than other people's, but it really wasn't difficult to come out. It was I felt completely relieved. I felt like I finally could be honest about who I was. So it really was not difficult for me.
0: Now, you were teaching at uh, was it Syracuse?
1: Well, at that point, when I came out as a lesbian, I was still um, I was still teaching at Ohio State as a graduate student. And so I was a graduate, I was a PhD student in English literature and critical theory. And then my my lesbian partner and I moved, after I completed my PhD, we moved from Columbus to uh, New York for me to begin my tenure track position in the English department at Syracuse University.
0: You you mentioned, uh, Dr. Butterfield, uh, that you're in your 50s. Of course, we're in our late 60s, and we have 14 grandkids. And with those 14 grandkids scattered at a whole bunch of ages here, it seems to me as though they are growing up in a different world than I grew up in and probably a different world than you grew up in. So topics are changing. I mean, the discussion is changing. The, the debate is increasing and the church and families don't seem to know what to do. I'm going to ask you, what, what should friends and family do? And maybe you can even comment on the local church. What should we be ready to do for the individual when they come out?
1: Right. Right, right, right. You know, you can't really defend what you can't define. And so one of the first things that church needs to do is to take a really good look at how we got here. And by here, specifically, Life After a fell where we are is in a place where sexual orientation and gender identity are considered ontological uh, beginning uh, foundational categories of personhood. In fact, they could not have become a civil right as they are now without being categories of personhood. And I think it really helps for the church to just take some stock in how we got here and to really think through whether we want to go there. You know, one of the things that is extremely helpful is that the Bible is realistic. It gives a realistic assessment to real life problems. And we find in the very beginning of scripture that being born male or female comes with ethical and moral responsibilities. Now, we have to think through how this category of sexual orientation came into being. When we look at it, when we look at it carefully, we see that it's not a biblical category. Uh, in fact, the, the Bible doesn't really speak to this idea that there are gay people or straight people or bi, and, the, and, and you know the alphabet soup just continues. The Bible talks about practices, and it talks specifically about sin and sinful practices. But in the late eighteenth, late nineteenth century. Sigmund Freud introduced this idea that people are best categorized by the kind of sexual desires that they have. And that is really how this category of homosexuality to describe a person, not a practice, that's where it began. So one of the things the church needs to do is really not buy it in some ways. You know, when And this is very painful, but you know, let's say that you do have a child who comes home from college and says, Mom, Dad, listen, I'm a lesbian. One of the first things that a Christian parent ought to do, and I'm not saying you ought to say this. I mean, you should always thank people for sharing what's heavy on their heart. But what you need to be thinking to yourself is, no, you're not. You're a child of the covenant. You're a prayed-for child. You may be experiencing same-sex attraction. You may be struggling long and hard and deep and wide with a sexual sin that just came out of nowhere and you don't know what to do with it. But you're not a lesbian because that's not a category of humanity. What the Bible tells us and what we know to be true is that we are all born distorted by original sin. Every single day of our lives, we are distracted by actual sin. And if we let these things flourish, we will be manipulated by indwelling sin. But, you know, one of the first things Christians can really not, if if you do this, you really, you lose the game before it even starts. If we throw out a biblical world and life view and instead accept, you know, really without even questioning the underpinnings of this worldview, the worldview of this new sexual revolution, if you do that, you will truly be of no help. And there is no gospel to share then. Uh, you know, one of the things that the world at large wants to say to us is, look, the gospel is just bad news for gay and lesbian people. And if you believe that, it's going to be really hard to see the risen Christ in that. It, what the gospel tells us is that we are all deeply in need of our Lord Jesus, and that for, for not there's not one of us. Uh-huh who is without sin or without the need for a savior. And so in some ways, knowing what your sin of choice is can be very helpful in your Christian walk. But we live in a world that says, no, no, gay and lesbian are morally neutral categories. And and I think that stems to some other problems that we might come to address. But one of the first things we need to do is to remember that ontologically, we are male and female image bearers of a holy God, and there's much honor and dignity in that, but there's also much responsibility as well.
0: So you would not be one who would advocate the argument that one is born gay?
1: Well, here's what I would say. I I won't disagree insofar as we're all born in original sin. So I would say, you know, Romans 1— helps us unpack a lot of this. And it seems to me that Romans 1 declares that homosexuality is an ethical outworking of original sin. So in that case, sure, I I don't see any reason why someone couldn't be born with a predisposition towards sin that takes its shape in same-sex attraction. That makes perfect sense to me.
0: And there are many different kinds of sinful behaviors that get distorted, as you said. And we find ourselves, for example, we know that there's a propensity in some for anger. There's a propensity in some for for sex. Uh, There are people who have uh, heterosexual difficulties, handling their heterosexual difficulties. And you're attributing all of that to the fact that we are born morally uh, corrupted by original sin.
1: That's right. And you know, that's, that's a doctrine of the historic Christian faith. And it's one that flies in the face of the Rousseauian revolution that really captured the the world in, you know, especially in modernity, the idea that you are naturally good. And the only problems that you're going to encounter are problems in the way that your environment causes you harm and discouragement. But Uh, you know, at least for me and just in a really personal way, I really had to struggle with that. Are my sexual desires for women a reflection of who I am or are they a distortion of it through original sin? That was a question that I really had to sit with and pray with for a good season of my life.
0: You had an emerging worldview that seemed to be contrary to the worldview you had already embraced. Is that fair to say?
1: Yes. In fact, it was a real conflict. And that's something that Christians need to not fear. One of the reasons we're in the mess we're in now is without intending to, the church has surrendered and individual Christians have surrendered on some key issues. And what I have discovered is that Friendship isn't really dependent upon agreeing on things. Friendship is dependent upon loving one another and being there for one another. But the church should not surrender on what it, you know, the depth of original sin and the, and the moral implications of it, at least not the historic Christian church. I mean, Romans 6 makes it pretty clear that we are both corrupt and guilty because of original sin. And that's a very hard thing for people to grasp. But I think it's important to really think through really what that means, you know, that we inherited a sin nature. What does that mean? And what is our responsibility, given that that's the case? You know, if you if I buy a house, and it just comes with a beautiful but enormous garden, and I say, well, I'm just going to let this garden flourish. And I never prune the roses. I never do anything about the pests or the weeds. After a few years, I have a mess. And if I go to a master gardener and I say, hey, you know, this is awful. I did nothing wrong. All I did was let my garden flourish. You know, rightly so, a master gardener would say, well, no, you really blew it the nature of a garden is to have weeds. By not dealing with it, you are the one who failed. You failed to take care of your garden. And in similar form, without really understanding the depth of original sin and its power to distort, we fail to take care of our souls it's that important.
0: You mentioned earlier and implied that there was there was more to your journey that came from Christians and one Christian in particular to help shape your worldview. You wanna tell us a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely, I'll tell you the Promise Keepers really came to me. I didn't come to them. They had a rally at Syracuse University, and I was so enraged that the university had actually allowed this—you know—group. I would have called it a fascist group at the time—to um, to take part, uh, you know, and use the facilities at our university. That I wrote an op-ed piece and published it in the Syracuse Post-Standard, and I got a lot of responses to that. I, I tend to read all of my mail. I still do. And one letter came from Pastor Ken Smith, who was then the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. And it really was the kindest letter of opposition that I had ever received. At the time, I was, I was starting a book on the religious right and their hatred, uh, their hatred for people like me, and when Ken and his wife, Floy, invited me to their home for dinner to talk about some of our differences, I really thought it would be great. I thought it would be great for my research. Um, I really wanted to understand what would make reasonable people choose an ancient book that was, in my opinion, riddled with all kinds of problems over and against the excellent and kind witness of you know your lesbians, you know, the lesbian couple next door. You know, I also fundamentally was just morally opposed to this idea that Christians felt entitled to tell other people what to do with their lives. I just did not understand why Christians would not leave consenting adults alone. So when Ken and Floyd invited me to their home for dinner to discuss these matters, i was I was really delighted to meet with them
0: and how did they how did they respond to you? Over the course of time, did he get impatient with you? Did he try to beat you over the head with the Bible, or what? Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I wanted to read the Bible. In fact, I, as an English professor, I, I wanted to read this book that I thought got all these people in trouble. So I wanted to read it, and um, and you know, you know, as a pastor, I'm sure they were just excited that anybody wanted to read the Bible, right? You know, so they were they were happy to fuel my desire to do that, and they trusted, of course, that the Spending time alone with the word would be a powerful experience for me and and potentially and hopefully a life-changing one. And that's what it was. I met with Ken and Floyd regularly for a course of two years before I ever stepped foot in a church. Ken and Floyd were always gracious and welcoming. We had very tough conversations. They were not squeamish. They wouldn't back off they'd share their opinion, and they'd also share the wisdom behind something. So we had many things that separated us. You know, I really thought that anybody who wasn't for abortion rights um, was a woman hater. And, and Floyd very, very graciously explained to me why she felt that was just the opposite was true. And that was really interesting. I'm telling you that no one in my life had ever, had ever explained that to me. So over that course of two years, I met with Ken and Floyd weekly for dinner. Sometimes they would come to my house and sometimes I would go to theirs. I met their friends, they met my friends, And we talked openly about the things about which we disagreed. Also, during that time, I was reading the Bible, and I was wrestling with the Bible. And I was meeting people in the Smith home who had had uh, some, some pretty intense backgrounds in sexual sin, just like my own, but had become followers of this God-man, Jesus Christ, and I was taking it all in. I read the Bible probably seven times through in those two years, and a lot happens when you read the Bible that much in a short period of time, even as an unbeliever.
0: I'm sure you're aware there are six key passages in the Bible that specifically address the matter of, of homosexuality, and I have read scads of material from gay scholars who take these passages with what I believe is a faulty exegesis and a faulty hermeneutic and make them say something that they're not saying you want to comment on that at all uh, because there's there's a lot of material coming out now from those who are respected gay scholars who are taking these six passages and in my opinion making them say something that they're not really saying
1: sure. Sure. And you know, one of the questions that we have to ask is, are these scholars saved? And I know that those are fighting words, but ultimately with most of those scholars, in fact, all but one that I can think of, we have a totally different understanding of the gospel message. It isn't those six passages. Those six passages are the least of my concern. We have a completely, totally different understanding of what the gospel message is, of what the Bible is, and of who Jesus is. So we've got some really big differences. I would say first off that anybody that comes to you and says, hey, look, even if the Bible does say that homosexuality is a sin, it only says it in six little pesky verses, and that can't be enough to really not allow, you know, Bill and Jim here to flourish. I mean, it, it, that's just unkind. It's uncruel. It asks too much of people. And, the, you know, the first issue that I would take up is, is this question of the six pesky verses. You know, the, a biblical sexual ethic is actually at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of personhood. Genesis 1, we're born male or female with ethical and moral responsibilities that stem from that. And it brings us all the way through the bride of Christ. Um, So you can't actually suggest that verses can be sort of tugged out of this Bible and you still have its saving authority. Taking six verses out of the Bible would be a little bit like going to a famous art museum and finding a quilt and snipping six, six threads and pulling those out. Well, what would happen? Well, you wouldn't have a tapestry anymore. You just wouldn't. It would would completely fall apart. And so in the same way, the Bible is a unified biblical revelation. But there's even a bigger issue that these scholars and I would disagree with, and it's this. Does the gospel come in addition to your life, or does it come in exchange for your life? If we can't answer that question and agree on that answer. There's no point in going past that.
0: You know, one of the things that I've been reading lately are people in the media and the arts who are coming out and doing so using those six passages and the alternative hermeneutic to defend their positions and to, in addition to that, to want to call themselves Christians. Do you have trouble with that?
1: Oh, yeah, I've got huge trouble with it. And you've got, you know, this whole category of gay, quote unquote, gay Christianity is a it's just it's really a travesty. And it's a travesty whether you're taking a a total revisionist perspective and you're supporting gay marriage. And it's still a travesty if you're if you're neo-Orthodox and you're saying, well, gay is good, but you're just not supposed to act on it. It's a travesty all the way around because it completely circumvents what personhood means to the Lord, and that's a really serious problem. What I would say is that we need to return to this question of the doctrine of sin, and we do because salvation is salvation because sin is so devastating. And so I think we need to get back to this question. Are there Christians who struggle, even maybe in a daily way, with same-sex attraction? Yes, There are Christians who struggle with everything. If you're not struggling, you're dead. So it's good that you're struggling. And the point is to struggle in God's way. How do we struggle in God's way? Well, we commit ourselves to living in the means of grace. We Are deeply connected to a Bible-believing church. Our friends know where we're struggling and they can hold our ankles. We fight against isolation and loneliness. Those are all very important things. We feed on the Word. We make great use of the sacraments. That's how we all deal with our deepest indwelling sin. But when we get to a place where we say that sin isn't sin, simply because I have felt this way my whole life, we are really perverting what it means to be born in original sin. We're really misunderstanding a fundamental part of the doctrine of sin. There are some ways that the church, I think, has has fed into the problem. We can maybe talk about that. But ultimately, the problem is our sin nature and how we are going to deal with it. And by God's grace, he gives us something called the family of God. So we do not have to deal with it alone, but we do have to deal with it. One of my favorite Puritan authors says that we are to wage an irreconcilable war with our choice sins every day. That's just not an idea that you're going to hear from some of this revisionist millennial writing. You
0: know, you speak of revisionist millennial writing. I just received a letter, or was was made aware of a letter, that came from a Christian rock star who is married, has become very successful in his career. And his letter was to his fans, and basically he, in that letter, was coming out. The language that he used, we would probably look at on the surface and call it gracious and kind. I have to be true to myself. I I have to be honest with myself. And he never mentioned what his wife was going to do with all of this. But the letter was an incredibly well-written, well-worded letter that I felt most Christians reading it are going to get snookered by it. Would you comment on the role that the media and the arts play in this whole ongoing discussion? this whole ongoing debate.
1: Right. And it's not just in the arts. You see this narrative form. It's really consistent through all of the gay Christian writings. Very heavy on personal experience, very low on scriptural integrity. So, you know, we have to go back and ask that. Is the highest order of my life being true to myself? You know, I wasn't raised in a Christian faith. Um, Nobody told me that God loves me just the way I am. And so when I read the Bible for the first time, I wasn't really shocked by it because it it, it didn't seem to contradict anything uh, at all. There was nothing really to contradict. The idea that in order to come to Christ, we must empty ourselves of ourselves, and Christ must fill us with his righteousness. That's the gospel message. The gospel message is not be true to yourself. You know, God never asked me if I'm a lesbian. God asked me how I was going to deal in Christ with my favorite sexual sin. And so when you ask the wrong questions, you're going to get the wrong answers and one of the first things christians need to be wise about is how to read these narratives of self-disclosure and you're you're right one of the things that the category that has come out of the gay christian movement recently is called mixed orientation marriage and that's where in the case that you mentioned with the with the uh, the musician that's where the wife identifies as heterosexual The husband identifies as homosexual, so they have a mixed orientation in their marriage. Now, I think that that completely dishonors the marriage bed. And I I would go to Hebrews, and I talk to these people all the time, so this isn't just I'm not talking theoretically here. Um, I would go to Hebrews 13, 4 marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled no one apart from your spa- spouse needs to know intimate details like that you know one of the things we have certainly seen in the in, in really the, the last number of decades is a total lack of modesty why does everyone need to know this information that is that is, we need to ask that question as well It's very unhelpful. But definitely what you're saying is right, that today to be considered an authentic person means that you must disclose private information that compromises your most intimate relationships. That's really a problem.
2: This probably goes back to one of the things we've already talked about a little bit, but The rock star type of influence is huge on young people, and our parents, the parents of these uh, young people, now have a whole new topic that they need to be addressing in their children, and that is same-sex attraction. How can parents prepare their children for dealing with the influences around them that seem that are saying this is perfectly normal and encourage young people to pursue those feelings. And second, um, when your child comes out, talk to us a little bit more about how the parents can help their uh, young adult deal with those feelings. Right, right, right. That's, and that's really important. I, I would say that when you
1: are talking with your children, about sexuality. And, and, and I if you aren't, you ought to be, right? This is very, it's very important the, the children you know, children are just being inundated right now. But I think it's important to even prepare your children to know that sometimes our deepest feelings, are at odds with what God has called us to do. And that instead of being isolated and feeling ashamed, your child should come to you. Your nine-year-old should come to you. And this has become, I mean, I think this is so important to prepare your children so that should you have a child who is struggling with same-sex attraction at the age of 12, That child doesn't feel that he or she has no place to go. That child can come to you and come directly to you. And you can together go to the Lord and work through what this means. I think even some of the purity literature is starting to include a portion that allows people to think through that, not in order to plant seeds of doubt, but to really provide bridges to communication, which is very, very important. So that's the one issue. The one issue is as you're talking to even your young children about sexuality, you can't ignore the fact that they know that the lesbian couple next door thinks they're married or believes they're married. And you have to be able to not just erase people from the face of the earth, because children, if we do that, then what children are going to say is, wow, you know, in order to deal with this problem, mom and dad have to just pretend it goes away. So I guess the Bible really isn't relevant. So, so you need to talk about that. I think the other issue is you need to think through and help your child think through and to be ready for the battle ahead, because the battle ahead really declares clearly that Christians are on the losing side of history and of culture and of everything else. And I think you need to just say to your children, well, let's read 1 Peter together, because you know what? Christians have always been on the losing end of these things. There's been a whole list of other things as well. But when a child has a friend in school who comes out as gay or transgendered, be open and willing to think through what that means with your child. You know, it could mean a couple of things. It could mean that that person is genuinely struggling or it could mean that that person doesn't want to be interpreted as a bigot. All of those things may be true. So keeping a very open line of communication and helping your child and yourself as well to think through these things scripturally I think is really important.
2: I'd like to uh, piggyback on that with college age and young adults who are now declaring that now that they can be on their own, they're declaring, okay, actually I'm gay and I'm so happy to finally be able to declare that and to be who I am. Right. And I'm a Christian and I love Jesus, and um, but I'm gay. How would you counsel parents who are complete shock or disagreement? Yeah. How would you counsel a parent? I mean, from the moment that they hear that child say to them, I'm gay. Right, right, right. Well, the first thing the parent has to do is know
1: the truth. I mean, there's just, if, if you are waffling on these things, it, it will be hard to help. And, and what's the truth? Well, the truth is that you have a child who is deceived by sin and is really struggling and has found a temporary peace because when the flesh is happy, you know, you find a temporary peace. That that shouldn't that shouldn't surprise anyone. And there are some really good books that could help with this. Kevin DeYoung's book What Does the Bible Really Say About Homosexuality? Joel Beeke has a new book out called One Man, One Woman. These are very they're short, they're easy to read. Parents can really get a lot from them. The other thing I think the parent needs to do is to not completely go into a you know, a spin into a panic mode. I mean, one of the things, although you're not happy with what your child has just said, you need to be in some ways thankful that the child is talking to you. Um, an adult child coming home to, to to directly discuss this with you is showing you respect, even if it doesn't feel very respectful. So you want to thank your daughter, thank your son for sharing what's really on your, on your heart, you know, what's really there. And then finally, what you need to do is see if there is a possible, you know, I mean, find, you know, one of the challenges. If if you're calling yourself gay and you're calling yourself Christian, you're you're either not one or you're not the other. I mean, that it you just it, it, these are two oxymoronic, incompatible terms. You can certainly be struggling with same sex attraction and be a Christian, but you cannot be giving yourself over to a sin of the flesh and think that you are in God's good standing. So those are, you know, those are two things to just, you know, be be thinking about. And you, you want to be able to work these out scripturally. But in order to do that, you need time. You need space. You need a lot of people praying for you. I mean, another excellent book. I mean, I think the most important book for parents who are facing the situation right now is Um, Angela Yuan and Christopher Yuan's book, Out of a Far Country. It chronicles so deeply and powerfully how Angela prayed for Christopher, and it chronicles so powerfully how the Lord turned Christopher around. But, you know, let's think about what change means, too. Change does not mean that your son or daughter goes from being same-sex attracted to all of a sudden wanting to be heterosexually married. That's not what change means. Change means your son or daughter goes from being same-sex attracted to being a Christian who says, I'm going to deal with my same-sex attraction the way that God calls me to. And I'm going to drive a fresh nail into my sin every day. So it's important that our expectations, that parents' expectations be appropriate as well.
0: Let me try to bring this as practically home as I can. I am reminded of a situation that just came before me, oh, about a year ago or so, where a young lady raised in a Christian home, raised in Christian schools, goes off to a Christian college and then announces to her parents, I believe it was in her senior year, that she is a lesbian, that she's involved with someone. And how should these parents respond to what has now become public they tried every which way possible to appeal to their daughter on the basis of her faith uh, she claims I am a Christian I love Jesus I read my Bible every day and yet I am I am not in agreement with you so as a pastor as a as a counselor as a leader what should my response be how should I help these parents uh, as far as, uh, should they put borders up? should they should they require certain things of their daughter and her future wife or husband, however they wish to refer to each other? What kind of parameters or borders should this family put up, if any? Right right. right.
1: Well, that's there's a lot in that anecdote and I know as a pastor, you know that. One of the first things these parents need to do is grieve and they need to remember, that the children that God gives us are really not our children. They are gifts from the Lord and we are called to steward, to love, to shepherd, but we don't own our children. So um, the, the tendency in the anecdote that you gave is to have a lot of shame and to try to do some face saving. And I, and I would, I would really suggest that, you know, some pastoral time is spent on letting the parents grieve and dealing with some of the pride issues that are going to come up, and the pride issues go like this: She was raised better; she shouldn't be doing this. I'm so mortified. Why did she have to come out on Facebook? You know, on and on and on and on. So, you know, the, we have logs in our eyes that need to be dealt with, and 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 it's it's crucial to do that. It's crucial to start there. It's crucial to start with a nice clean slate. It's crucial to remember that what humbles you cannot hurt you. It's only pride that can hurt you. Now, it's also important to just remember the 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 facts of the Bible. I mean, even the demons believe in Jesus and that it's, you know, that that belief is going to just send them straight to hell. So that doesn't believing in Jesus is not what makes one a Christian. And um, if we have no part in the atoning blood of Christ, we have no part in the atoning blood of Christ. And that's the serious issue. I would say that, this is one of those situations where you want to spend a good be- good bit of time on your knees really beseeching the Lord for what is the first thing to do. And it seems to me that the first thing to do is to realize that as Christian parents, we are called to shake the gates of heaven for the souls of our children. And in the case of the anecdote that you've given, I would start with a child who's just come out as a lesbian. And I'd start there. Because sexual sin is really serious. It's not a small thing. And that's something that we really do need to be able to talk about as Christians. Why are we concerned? It is not just because the Bible tells me so. What the Bible tells me is committing sexual sin is destroying my soul. It is making it harder and harder and harder for me to hear the voice of God and it is nailing pins into my coffin that are dangerous and cannot easily be undone. And so I would really start with that. Now, um, I would never use terminology like husband and wife. So if a woman you know, goes to the courthouse and gets a marriage license and is now married to another woman, I would not call them wives. I, I think that Christians especially— have to remember that if you change the language, you're going to change the logic. We are Christians, we believe in the binarism of male and female as outlined in Genesis one and our language needs to reflect that. And if we lose it at the language level, there's no way to catch it back at the logic level. Now, you know, another question that comes up is what boundaries should you put up in terms of going to the events, to the wedding? And, you know, that's a very difficult question, and that's a question that these parents need to deal with with their elder and their pastors. They need to be pastored through this decision. They have much to lose. They have much to gain. What I would say is that we need to remember that a wedding is not a birthday party. You know, can you go to the birthday party of your daughter's partner? Well, of course you can't. Um, can your daughter and her partner come over for Thanksgiving dinner? Well, of course they can. Can you go to their quote unquote, wedding? I don't think so, because you're not just an onlooker. If you're part, if you're invited to someone's wedding, you are there to give a blessing. You are there to bestow a blessing upon them. And I was speaking at a large church um, a couple of years ago now. And an older woman, she was in her late 70s, waited until the very end of a long book signing to speak with me. And she said, Rosaria, I'm in my late 70s. I have been homosexually married to my partner for 50 years. We have children. We have grandchildren. But I have finally heard the gospel. And I'm going to lose it all. Right? And I said, right. And she said, I just wish somebody had told me this before." You know, there are a lot of people who were trying to be polite, I would think, in this woman's life. And there are a number of people who by trying to be polite and save face and maybe do what appeared to be the gracious thing were perhaps unwittingly, but they were still doing this, they were tying a millstone around her neck. And people will ask me why I oppose gay marriage, I just tell them that I am called to be a good neighbor. And good neighbors never throw a stumbling block between a fellow image bearer and a holy God, ever. And that's what the Obergefell decision has done, and that's what gay marriage has done. And Christians need to stay very clear of adding millstones to the necks of fellow image bearers of a holy God. But this is a grievous situation. It is painful the lord captures every tear in a bottle the lord's yoke is easy and his burden is light and it was very confusing to me when i first when i first came to faith I, I mean i i will tell you that it took quite some time for me to really understand why you know why we couldn't just let some people marry the whatever person they wanted to why it had to be so hard and it really wasn't until I spent a lot of time studying who the Lord Jesus is and what he underwent on my behalf. It was, it was not until I understood that the Lord Jesus himself had to learn obedience, that to, to suggest that, that somehow our disobedience is a small thing, that is a true offense to anyone who loves the Savior.
0: Let me uh, think about that pastor who's sitting out there right now, and in my particular case, I have the privilege of mentoring some younger pastors who are just uh, starting out in their churches, and this debate, this theological and cultural debate is is raging, you know, white hot. What advice would you give a pastor who really desires to lead his congregation into a solidly biblical and intellectual and culturally relevant discussion on this whole debate?
1: Well, you know, first of all, if you're preaching, um, exegetically through the Bible, you're going to do that. But one of the things that you need to think through is, I think this question of, um, is same sex attraction, uh, how can I help people in my congregation understand it? How can I help people, um, battle sin in the right way, um, how can, we be, how can we disclose what needs to be disclosed without lacking modesty in our description? I think that's a hard thing, especially today. Another good question is how can we be a family of God? Because, you know, often when you are struggling with same-sex attraction and you're thinking about what that might mean lifelong, it isn't so much the sex that you are no longer going to be able to have that is the most frightening thing. It's the condemnation to loneliness. Now, if a church can't step into the life of a fellow church member and believer and answer the problem of loneliness, we have no business calling ourselves a church that reflects the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I, you know, I often take people to Mark chapter 10, verses 29 to 30. Jesus is uh, speaking. And he says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. You know, that promise of receiving a hundredfold, and a specifically then listing brothers and sisters and mothers. That's a description of how the church is to surround believers who are struggling with same sex attraction and telling them clearly: struggling with sin is hard. I'm here for you. I understand, even if I don't identify and experience the same problem, and you're part of the family. The gospel comes with a house key. You don't have to be lonely. You're going to be at my house for Christmas and Thanksgiving. And and you know what? During seasons of loneliness, move in. Our holiday's rough. That's why we have a guest room. Until the church starts to do something like that, I mean, and that's really a big thing to ask, I think, many, many churches. But until the church starts practicing hospitality in the way the New Testament lays it out, I don't think we are going to be able to help believers who struggle with same-sex attraction. So the church has much to do at the level of its own culture and practices. You know, when I first committed my life to Christ, I was really scared. And it, it wasn't just that I was scared because I had just broken up with my girlfriend and, you know, and all that. I mean, that was kind of scary. But But the thought of leaving my lesbian community was really terrifying because it was a real community. Every night of the week, somebody's home was open for dinner, conversation, just standing between you and depression. To go from that to a church community where it's very bounded, there's a lot of rules. You know, there's that sense that if you're not part of a nuclear family, you just don't have a place to go. That was the scary part. That was that was the hardest part. So I would say the church does need to think about itself as a family of God and think about ways to put that into practice before people start to share some of these really deep, besetting sin issues. So,
0: Dr. Butterfield, we have a couple, for example, and, and I'm not saying we do, but I have in the past, but I'm sure there are other pastors out there who are listening to this who have a couple in their church, uh, either a homosexual gay couple or a lesbian couple or whatever, attending their church, and they want to become involved. Uh, They want to become involved in leadership, uh, or they want to be able to teach, or they want to be able to uh, provide some sort of leadership because they believe they have gifts to share with the body. Uh, These are folks who are professing to be Christians. What advice would you give that pastor?
1: Well, that's where the regulative principle of worship really comes in handy. And this is where Reformed churches have a protection clause right now that broad evangelical churches desperately need. Let me tell you what the Lord thinks of Rosaria's gifts, my gifts. My gifts are filthy rags. That's what my gifts are. My pastor is my husband, but if I went to him and said, hey, I need to start using my gifts in the church, he and I both understand my gifts filthy rags. That's what the Bible says about my gifts. Leadership is outlined clear, clearly in in, in the Bible. And churches that have already abandoned a biblical um, uh, paradigm for leadership don't have any recourse right now with this problem. And, and I know that this sounds really harsh. I don't mean it to be this harsh, but ordaining women was the gateway to gay theology. This is this is how it, you know, things happen according to a bridge. They they happen according to precedent. So what I would say is if you have a couple who identifies as lesbian or gay worshipping in your church, you know, hallelujah, you are preaching to people who need to hear the gospel. And what you really desperately want is you want them to have such a committed relationship with the Lord Jesus that it is a sacrificial relationship and that they see it. And as you are preaching through the whole Council of God, they're going to have to confront this issue that idols must be dealt with. You cannot take an idol and make it a house pet. And sexual sin isn't as is absolute it's the it's the reigning idol of our day, and it's, it's and for many, many couples, um, both couples who identify as gay and couples who identify as heterosexual, it's a really big issue. So everybody is going to have to deal with their idols. But there is simply this question of church leadership. It, it doesn't come up um, because you feel called to it. Church leadership has protections because this is the bride of Christ. And so I would just encourage churches... To go back to the basics on that and to really rethink the regulative principle of worship if you have um, abandoned it and the regulative principle of church government if you have rejected it. Because I think that in order to get in order to safely get through this moral revolution, I think churches need to, to much better able work through some of those issues first.
0: Well, you and I both know that most churches do not practice biblical church discipline. And my question would be, if you're in a church or if you're leading a church where biblical church discipline is not practiced, what should the response be when someone in the congregation who claims to be a member or is a member, quote, comes out, unquote? Right,
1: absolutely. Well, and again, if people come out and say, this is what I'm struggling with, you say, thanks so much for telling me. This is really important. How can I help? But if you are a church that is not practicing biblical church government, you need to answer the question as to why. And if the why, if the answer as to why is that you are people pleasing, then you need to understand that that is a sin and that you are yourself in danger of displeasing the Lord. I think it's that serious of a conversation. And like you, I don't just spend my time talking Within my small reformed sectarian circle, I'm talking to the world on this issue, and I think it's necessary to warn evangelical pastors that they are in danger if they are people pleasing, if they are failing to shepherd because they don't want to disappoint. They are in danger. It's serious. I think you have to start there. If a church cannot practice discipline with itself, it has no grounds to deny anyone access to anything.
0: Should a church be engaged in the political fight over the gay agenda?
1: Well, that it, it depends upon what you mean by that. Um, should a church equip its citizens— to def- to understand and defend religious liberty protections absolutely those are necessary for everybody not just christians the conscience of every person is dependent upon religious liberty should the church encourage and equip its members To take a stand in public policy, to know how to speak to their neighbors who don't understand what these bathroom laws are all about. Should the church equip its people in that way? Well, absolutely. Because the idea that you can't legislate morality is absurd. We legislate morality all the time. The stop sign uh, that's right outside my house that I'm staring at as we talk about, that legislates morality. What you can't legislate is virtue. But You know, every law discriminates against a behavior. That's why it's a law. But should the church make enemies out of a people group because you perceive that people group to be reprobates who are beyond the hope of the gospel? If you do that, then I'm one of the people that you don't get to claim.
0: Dr. Butterfield, I want us all to imagine... A young lady or a young man, 14, 15 years old, sitting on the other side of the desk and listening to this resource for the very first time hearing our discussion, who is struggling with same-sex attraction. I I want you to speak just to that person.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I would say, I understand. And I would say also this that in any church that you walk into everybody is struggling with something and that this struggle is no more demeaning or diminishing to to the integrity of your life and your life in Christ than any other you are if you are in Christ you are a son of the highest, holiest God. You are standing in robes of righteousness. You are uh, the daughter of the king, and you're struggling. And it's embarrassing, and maybe it's embarrassing because you just don't know if it's safe to talk about it. And, And the first thing you need to do is you need to pick somebody in your church to talk to. I'm going to say preferably a pastor or an elder, preferably somebody older than you. And, 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 I, and I want you to have the courage prayerfully to share what you're struggling with. Because it gives God glory to allow other people to pray for you in your struggle. It is not only, you know, everything that we do, we, we live to give God glory, And although it sounds really counterintuitive, kind of crazy, when you share what you're struggling with, that gives God glory. It gives God glory because other people are praying for you. And it it gives God glory because you see some new avenues of repentance that maybe you hadn't seen before. So, So you must not be alone. And the reason you must not be alone is because God wants you to flourish in a community of believers. Now, if this is a young person, this is a 15-year-old, I would also say that we don't really know what this means long-term. So Christians are not called to worry about tomorrow. We just aren't. We're not called to sit here and say, oh no, for the rest of my life, this is now my besetting sin. We don't say that at all. We trust that the Lord Jesus Christ meant it When he said it, and we trust that what he said, when he declared it is finished, means what he says, that we are, we died with Christ and we rise with Christ. But it's not going to happen in isolation. So the first thing to do is to talk to somebody who loves you and somebody who loves the Lord And somebody who can put your suffering hand into the hand of the Savior who loves you.
2: Dr. Butterfield, this time with you has been so rich and so challenging. As we close our time together, I know that your life is tremendously full of all the normal responsibilities of a mother and a wife. And you have to probably struggle to keep your time in the right place and your priorities. But you also uh, have had times in your life where you've experienced uh, enormous pain and uh, suffering and trial. Uh, speak to that person who wants to walk by faith but is in a hard place. Uh, what are some of the disciplines that you have in your own life? How do you keep your eyes focused on Christ and the truth of the gospel?
1: Right, right. The Psalms. I, I read five psalms every day, and then I'm also a psalm singer. So I, I find that that is a crucial, crucial book for me to be in daily. And I always recommend it when people are suffering, um, it, it, because it really addresses that question of where, where is God in my suffering? And, and you know, that's, that's really the most important question. So I would strongly rec- recommend that you read through the Psalms. That you stay very close to the Psalms, in a, really in a daily devotional way. I-, I also recommend that as you're reading the Psalms, that you employ some of the some of the strategies that the, that the Psalmist uses. The Psalmist often will talk to himself using God's word, rather than just sort of playing out the the trial that is at hand. I also recommend that when you are going through uh, severe suffering and trial, that you, you know that grief, that, that God wants to capture every tear in a bottle, and that grief is a necessary and important journey in the Christian life. Um, and to, to make sure that you have Christian friends who are praying for you and who can sit with you in your grief um, because it, it takes it takes a long time. And it takes a long time because the gospel is costly and it's worth it.
3: This moving and informative interview was produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. To contact Mark Inc. Ministries for more information on other resources, call us toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877-627-5462. Visit us online at markinc.org to see what other free resources are available for Mark Inc. Ministries. Our message today is designed to offer help and hope to those who have been struck by the pain from a variety of sources. If you or someone you know or love is struggling, you are likely to find a Mark Inc. Ministries resource on that topic to offer a bit of hope to that pain. That website again is markinc.org. You can also contact Chuck and Sharon Betters in care of Mark Inc. Ministries at 2880 Summit Bridge Road, Bear, Delaware, 19701. Mark Inc. Ministries, making abundant riches known in the name of Christ.